Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and as always, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Buried treasure. It has a mystique about it. The idea that you could stumble across some find that could take your life from ho-hum to champagne and caviar. So many people are drawn to these tales, from King Solomon's Mine to Fen's Treasure. Tonight I will be discussing one of the most astounding claims you will ever hear of. When you're talking about a buried treasure rumored to be worth $30 billion, yeah, well, you could definitely um, <laughs> upgrade your car, upgrade your house. Yeah, it's, it's a real fascinating story. Like I say, it's nearly ripped straight out of the uh, pages of a romance novel or a Hollywood movie. So make sure you stick around. You won't want to miss it. Aside from that, I hope that uh, wherever you are in the world, the weather's been great. I hope that you are enjoying yourselves. You've had a good week. It's been a bit uh, fine and clear here, just cold overnight, but um, it is midwinter, so uh, what what more is to be expected? Uh, as always, I just want to give a few shout-outs to uh, some of the show's uh, biggest biggest supporters. I really appreciate uh, all the support and love that you've given me and um, the encouragement to carry on doing the show. Uh, it's, it's, really, it's really appreciated, folks. Um, to all of you as listeners, and also uh, special shout-outs to uh, Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, as always. Um, my mate Sebastian, and also my mate Jake in the Bay of Plenty here in New Zealand. The Fidianga tribe, Eddie in uh, California, Abby in California, Adriana in Texas, my family in Montana, and as always, Scott and the team at the Old Seventy Seven Podcast in Missouri. Now, I'll uh, I'll go into a bit more depth about uh, Scott and the team uh, in just a second, but I also just wanted to say. Uh, uh, happy birthday to a very close uh, friend uh, to the show, someone who I consider family. I don't know if they'll ever hear this, but uh, Terry, happy birthday in North Shore here. Uh, I hope that you had a great day. Uh, everything I've seen, it, it looks like you really enjoyed yourself, so happy birthday. Uh, as for Scott and the rest of the team at the Old 77 Podcast, uh, they've given me a very special shout-out this week, and it's it's very humbling. I really appreciate it. At the beginning of their newest episode, uh, they gave the Paranormal Sun and also the Fortunate Sun a shout-out. So for those of you who don't know, the Fortunate Sun is the initial podcast program that I started and then spun the Paranormal Sun off. So you can go over and find the Fortunate Sun podcast as well. That's also from me. But um, yeah, uh, to Scott and the rest of the team at the Old 77, uh, thank you. Uh, you know, it's it, it's really really means a lot to me that you gave me a shout out on your program. Uh, Scott and the team over there, they've done their last two programs on um, UFOs, aliens, alien abductions, and just the general conversation between, you know, three guys, uh, basically having a general conversation about what do you think of all of this stuff with UFOs and aliens. And it's quite a good, it's, you know, I would liken it to a bit of a fireside chat, you know, with, among three friends. Really good program. So if you get a chance, go over there and check those out. You know, uh, they do they do a really good uh, job of putting out that that program. So thanks again. Uh, and aside from that, as I say, you know, I just appreciate all the support, everyone listening. Uh, the program has now got over a hundred plays on Anchor which may not sound like a lot to many people, but um, as I keep saying, when I started this program, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, and the fact that more than a handful of people have listened to what I put out there, uh, it really means a lot to me. And um, it encourages me to continue putting out content, you know. Um, 
the reason that I've chosen this format, as I say, and the reason why I keep putting out these programs is I want to give people a healthy mix of mysteries and paranormal UFO cases and the like that they've never heard of. And I also want to make sure that I present some of the more famous ones um, and maybe with that different angle. And uh, every time that I have researched one of these topics, I found out something new myself. So it's been uh, it's been very good for myself as well. So uh, long may it rain. And again, just thank you all from the bottom of my heart. I really do appreciate it. Uh, tonight's topic, wow, I, I really learned a lot. There's a lot more to the story than um, I initially thought, so I'm sure that you'll enjoy hearing it. So this week, uh, as always, you know, I'm always on the hunt or always on the lookout for new content, you know, for, for the show, new topics to cover over. And uh, this week alone, I probably came up with about four or five new topics that I hadn't heard about. And this is the thing that I love about um, the paranormal, Fortiana, and the unexplained, is that I'm always learning. There's always something new. There's always some undiscovered little gem that I haven't heard of. And I'm always excited to document those and get them out there for you. I mean, that's why right now, you know, I'm doing so many shows. I'm just trying to get the information out there while I've got the time. I'm trying to document it because, um, honestly, as I just look into these things and I see more and more, I don't think I'll ever run out of topics for the for the program. It's like every time I get rid of one, three or four more pop up. So yeah, it's it's been a really fascinating week about just learning some of the newer things. Um, as always, you know, over on Instagram, I've got the page set up for the show over there. You can go, always go over there and check it out. Uh, I would encourage you to, as I often post up things about the the program and also you know some photos that I might discuss on the air. I'll also post up things about, uh, you know, some of the um, the news of the damned that I read each week. So, yeah, you know, um, if you get a chance, find your way over there to Instagram. Um, also, if you want to support the show, um, as always, I'd really appreciate, uh, you know, you going over to uh, Apple or Google, wherever you find your podcast and just rating the show. The higher rating that you give the show when people search under search topics for things like the paranormal, then the show moves to the front of the list so it doesn't get buried down the bottom. So if you want to help, you can do that. If you want to help further, uh, you can always also go and support the show on Patreon if you wanted to. Um, and there are some other things in the works that I'll be updating you on very soon. But, um, you know, everything takes time. And um, even with me not working right now, uh, there's there's plenty on in my life to try and balance with the program as well. But um, like I say, folks, uh, I really enjoy it. I learn something new every week. And, um, you know, I just I really enjoy having this venue to be able to discuss these things with you. So now, folks, as always on the show, um, I will read to you the news of the damned. So for those of you who haven't been listening to the show for a long time, one of my personal major influences in this field and one of the pillars of paranormal and the unexplained as it's known today was Charles Fort. And he explained any information or any data that was excluded by science or ignored as damn data. So therefore, each week I try and pick out three articles along these uh, terms, you know, whether they're strange, weird, paranormal, UFOs, etc. And I'll read them out on the air. So uh, this week, uh, there's definitely been some big news in and around uh, some of these topics that I cover. 
Um, the first one that I'm, it, it, I'm not going to read the article to you because it's a bit old, but I actually hadn't heard of it. And, um, the, the thing is, uh, you know, there's, there's that, uh, famous song line from John Lennon and he says, strange days indeed. And, um, we are definitely living in some strange days. I didn't realize that in March of this year, in the middle of all of the COVID, uh, lockdown, that I, I knew that the Pentagon had come out and said that the footage from the carriers uh, in 2004 and I believe 2010, that that footage was real, that it wasn't a hoax. And it because it was released by a private company before, the Pentagon basically came out and confirmed that this is our footage. It was UFOs and we can't explain what it was. Well, I didn't actually realize that President Trump had commented on this publicly. Now, I know uh, Donald Trump is very divisive um, and he's very polarizing, but the story here isn't Donald Trump. The story is that the sitting president of the United States commented on a UFO case uh, at a time while he was in office and uh, publicly. So, you know, he basically came out and he said, oh, I wonder if this footage is real. And then he also said that, you know, people who have told him that they have seen UFOs before, um, he doesn't necessarily believe them. It doesn't matter whether he believes them or not. It's the simple fact that the office of the presidency has covered this topic. And to me, you know, that's really fascinating because if you go back to, let's say, 1997 and the Phoenix Lights, there's no way on, on the planet that you were going to get the president to talk about the Phoenix Lights. So, you know, you don't have to love Donald Trump, but the fact that it's at least been discussed by the president of the U.S. just tells me that, you know, we've come a long way. Also, as far as the Maje cases that I've been covering out of Brazil, again, it just seems like everything's gone quiet. So, you know, apologies, folks. I'm sure something will come out of the woodwork in the near future. Linda Moulton Howe, as always, does an excellent job covering over these cases. So, you know, when I hear more, I'll make sure that uh, I cover it over on the show. So now over to the news of the damned and the first of the three articles tonight. Now, this is a really fascinating one for those of you who are into lost treasure. The other night I was sitting in the lounge or some might say a sitting room and uh, living room and I was watching TV and uh, on the bottom of the screen, it came across that Fenn's treasure had been found. And I was just astonished because this is something that I'm very acutely aware of. And many people who follow the same stuff I do uh, would also be aware of. Now, basically, uh, I'll just give you a very brief overview because I would like to cover this um, on a future show. So I don't want to give away all of the, uh, the story. I don't want to spoil it all for you. But basically, Forrest Fenn is an art dealer who amassed, you know, quite a fortune in his life. And about 10 years ago, he was going through um, cancer, and he very well thought that he was going to pass away. So he buried a bronze chest, uh, which was filled with gold, some other artifacts, um, gold dust, jewels, uh, and some very rare gold coins, gold and silver coins. It was worth about $1.25 million U.S., and he buried it somewhere in the Rockies, and then he put some clues in his memoir that he released after he recovered from cancer. And, you know, there have been people say that, oh, well, it was just a hoax. It was a plan to sell books. But, you know, he might have wanted people to read his life story. But one, he already had, uh, you know, enough money to last him the rest of his life. He was 79 at the time. 
and B, um, it's not like it jumped to the number one on the on the New York Times bestseller list. So if that was his intention, um, I don't really see you know that it was very successful. Well, anyway, just to get into this article, it's from CBC.ca, so that will be uh, Canada. I believe it's the Canadian Broadcasting Company, so it's probably the radio uh, in Canada. And the article is titled, Forrest Fenn says his $1 million treasure has been found, but he won't say where or by whom. A woman who spent six years looking for the hidden treasure says she's she has a lot of emotions about it. So this was from CBC Radio um, and posted on June 9th, 2020. Sasha Dent estimates she has spent 10,000 hours, 10,000 hours, wow, scouring the Rocky Mountains for Forrest Fenn's hidden treasure. But now she has to get a new hobby. That's because the famed art and antiques collector says the bronze chest full of gold, jewels, and ancient artifacts that he claims to have buried 10 years ago has finally been found. There's a lot of emotions that go with something like this ending, Dent, an amateur treasure hunter from Junction City, Kansas, told As It's Happening's Coast Carol Off. I accept that it's over and that I was not the victor. A popular and sometimes deadly endeavor. The story of Fenn's treasure goes back a decade. The 89-year-old claims he hit a bronze chest of items worth $1 million U.S. in 2010. He posted clues to its whereabouts online and in a 24-line poem that was published in his 2010 autobiography, The Thrill of the Chase. Fenn, who lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, says he packed and repacked the treasure chest for more than a decade, sprinkling in gold dust and adding hundreds of rare gold coins, gold nuggets, pre-Columbian animal figurines, and prehistoric mirrors of hammered gold, ancient Chinese faces carved from jade, and antique jewelry with rubies and emeralds. Now, folks, this is my kind of treasure because it's not just, it doesn't just have a dollar figure value. It's also got an art and historic value. So, uh, again, you know, um, I'm not in the U.S. anymore, but I would have loved to have gotten my hands on uh, Fenn's treasure. In a 2013 interview on As It Happens, Fenn evaded Off's attempts to glean information about the treasure's whereabouts, saying, I'm not going to give you any more clues. Hundreds of thousands of people have scoured remote corners of the western U.S. in search of the treasure. Some people quit their jobs to dedicate themselves to the search, and others depleted their life savings. Now, folks, I'm not going to read the article in its entirety. As always, I'll have a link in the show notes. But uh, basically... You know, some people have died uh, looking for this treasure. My understanding is that Mr. Fenn said that the person who discovered the treasure was from back east. They sent him a photo of the location um, and a photo of the actual treasure. So, and they don't want to be identified. So he has said that he will be releasing more evidence as time goes on. Now, there are a few, as I say, there are a few theories, conspiracy theories in and around this treasure. One is that the treasure has never existed and that this was a big publicity stunt to basically sell the man's books. Now, the other one that I find more interesting, and um, I haven't read this anywhere on the internet, but this was just my, my thoughts, and I'm sure others have come to the same conclusion. Now, multiple people have died trying to find this treasure. So the idea behind the treasure was that Forrest Fenn wanted people to go out in nature and experience the wilderness, get get away from our houses, televisions, phones, and the internet, and get out in nature, okay? So as far as that goes, look, it's it's been a huge success because he's got hundreds of thousands of people out into nature. But, you know, some people take this quite seriously, obviously, and 
they're basically looking for it simply for the gain, not the thrill of the, the chase, but the monetary gain. So there have been several people die hunting for this treasure. Now, what if the authorities had went to Forrest Fan and said, look, this is getting out of control. We've had multiple people dying. We want you to tell people that this treasure has been found so they stop looking. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying, you know, that thought has come to my mind. And I think it's quite interesting. And I, I do think it's something to bear in mind. Now, as always, I try to wait for all of the facts to come in before I, you know, set my opinion in stone. This one's no different. Mr. Fenn has said that he will be releasing more proof. So if that's the case, you know, we'll, we'll see in following weeks and months. And as always, you know, I'll keep you updated as, um, as I find out more. But nonetheless, fascinating story, modern day treasure. And again, a life-changing amount of money that, you know, uh, a person in their midlife like myself could have retired with that. Someone who's younger could have started a business or uh, bought a house. So I hope whoever it is that discovered it, if they've discovered it, I really hope that, uh, you know, it goes towards a good cause. Now on to the second story. Now this one here is very close to home. Um, now a lot of people don't know because New Zealand is out of the way and, you know, it's not one of the more populated places in the world. Most people think of New Zealand and they think of things like, um, you know, the movies and, and television that are filmed here, like Lord of the Rings. Um, that's changed a little bit uh, with, you know, some other famous New Zealanders like Lord and um, Stephen Adams, uh, you know, living overseas and making names for themselves. But um, basically, folks, look, we've got our share of paranormal, unexplained and cryptids here in New Zealand. And that's what this article is about. It's quite fascinating. Again, I'm going to give you a brief overview because, again, I would like to cover over some of the things in New Zealand in a future show. So I don't want to let the cat out of the bag completely, um, if you know what I'm saying, and you will once I read this article. So this one is from our kind of national newspaper here, which is the NZ Herald. Um, and this article was published on the 6th of June, uh, and it's titled, Canterbury Panther, Inside the Search for South Island's Biggest Cat. Now, for those of you who don't know much about New Zealand, uh, we have two large major islands and then a few smaller ones. So North Island and South Island, you know, uh, very creatively named. North Island is where I live. Uh, I live fairly far north in the North Island. I live in the largest city in the country. About a third of the people live live here in Auckland. Uh, this uh, tale is in South Island. It's near Christchurch, which is the largest city in South Island, and it's got about 350,000 people. So um, now into the uh, article, it says, Is it a puma, a mountain lion, a figment of the imagination? For years, South Islanders and tourists have claimed to have spotted an unlikely creature roaming the countryside. Grainy photos show large black cats slinking around, but their existence has never been proven. In this abridged extract from his new book, New Zealand Mysteries, Scott Bainbridge looks at the legend of the Canterbury Panther. So Canterbury is the region or province that Christchurch is in. David Winray, an amateur big cat hunter, has told of encountering what he described as a tawny grayish cat about six meters away from him in Christchurch. So that's about 18 to 20 feet away. Winray initially believed the cat to be some kind of mountain lion. He told his father-in-law what he'd seen, and the older man recalled an incident from when he'd been working at the port in Littleton during World War I. So Littleton is the port in Christchurch. It's one of the biggest ports in South Island. There's a mountain range 
called the Port Hills. It's not a mountain range, sorry, hills between Littleton and Christchurch City. One day in 1915, a ship from America was being unloaded. On board the ship was a cargo of animals bound for Australia. One of the cages was accidentally broken open, allowing its occupant, a pregnant female puma, to escape. It was last seen running towards the Port Hills. Apparently, officials made little attempt to catch the cat, and it seemed likely that no search was conducted. It is possible that news of the incident was suppressed to quell any possible concerns the public might have had about a wild puma on the loose. Besides which, it was believed the puma would not survive the freezing winter conditions. Well, um, again, folks, um, goes goes to show what they know because um, yeah, pumas, uh, mountain lions can definitely uh, <laughs> survive in freezing winter conditions because we had them in uh, northern Idaho, where I'm from, and it got to be minus forty. Is it possible the puma did survive? Is she responsible for spawning generations of pumas that have remained elusive? In the century since that incident, there have been the occasional sightings of large wild cats roaming the countryside, but these have largely been written off as cases of mistaken identity. That was until a close-up sighting of a large cat by Kaipoi resident Francis Clark, which created national headlines in July 1977. An, earlier, an early riser, Clark opened the blinds one morning and saw a tiger by her front gate. When questioned by the media later, she stated she knew a pig when she saw one, and an Alsatian dog, but this was definitely a tiger. It was fair in color and had a long tail. She could not make out any stripes. Shocked and in disbelief, she decided not to say anything at first, but started worrying about small children heading to school later in the morning. She telephoned the police who took her sighting seriously. Initially, it was thought a tiger might have escaped from the Orana Wildlife Park in nearby Harewood. Now, I've been there, folks, and... Um, you know, this is one of those wildlife parks that's meant to simulate kind of like a safari. So there are animals in enclosures, but it's not so much bars and cages. It's more of an open, um, open form, and you can get in a in the back of a ute or a pickup with a steel cage, and you drive into the animal enclosure to see the lions uh, rather than the lions um, coming to see you. Or from the circus that had been in the area a week earlier. Police amassed a search party which included some staff from Arana Park, some of whom were armed with tranquilizer guns. The search found no trace, and all cats from the zoo and circus were accounted for. Poor Clark was then subjected to ridicule and accused of being a liar. Her claims were vindicated several days later when large paw prints and, an animal, dro and animal droppings were discovered at nearby Pines Beach. Now, folks, as always, I'm not going to read the entire article. I want to leave something there for you. But there are many other cases of these large cats being spotted in and around uh, South Island. Now, the reason why this is so fascinating is there have never been any large predators in New Zealand in living memory. So basically, since humans have been in New Zealand, there have been no predators larger than opossums, stoats, which are like weasels, or mink, you know, that shape. There are no large uh, predators here. And that's one of the reasons why so many people come here to hike and tramp and camp, because aside from exposure and, you know, terrain, falling and hurting yourself, you don't have to worry about large animals. We don't have any wolves or coyotes. Uh, there might be the odd wild dog or feral dog, but there's very few of them. And, uh, you know, I, I've been out in the woods here and it is a bit strange because of where I came from, and you always have to be on guard against predators. So, um, yeah, basically, 
this is there there is nothing here in the known natural world in New Zealand that can explain these sightings. Um, there have been many of these sightings as well in the UK. I'm sure my UK um, listeners would know of many of the of the cases of the things like uh, Exmoor and um, you know. Um, uh, Black Shook and some of these other stories that I'll definitely cover over in a later uh, program. But yeah, it, it is very fascinating. Now, for those of you not in New Zealand or not familiar with New Zealand, uh, the Canterbury Plains and a lot of the area where the, these sightings have occurred, think of somewhere like the Midwest, uh, some of the more secluded areas, uh, or like the Badlands or the Desert Southwest where there's not a lot of people, you have a lot of open plains and hills. And for those in England and the UK, again, you know, Northern England, uh, some of the moorlands, places like the Midlands, you know, uh, the Lake District, this is very much what this area looks like. So it is a fascinating case. And, um, you know, hopefully at some point we'll get an answer to it. Now, the third and final article on today's show is from the expressandstar.com. So this is out of the UK, and no shock to anyone listening, I'm sure. Uh, anyone who knows anything about U UFOs, you should know that uh, the UK is a hotspot for UFOs. It always has been. There have been numerous sightings. Some of the best uh, documented sightings in history have occurred in the UK. And this one is titled, Stafford is named as a UFO hotspot. So Staffordshire County Town has been named as a hotspot for UFO sightings. So this was published on the 2nd of June. Um, and it was written by Jamie Brassington. 19 UFO sightings were reported in Stafford in a 12-month period, according to new research. The old market town made the UK's top 10 list for UFO sightings, coming in at number 6. The tally of sightings were revealed through freedom of information requests. So again, folks, this is basically people who have called the government, uh, rang the police, and said, I've sighted a UFO. This is not people and just general sightings that have later been reported to the press. So um, that's why that might not sound like a large amount, but it's quite a large amount to be reported in one, one small area. The data is from 2009, more than 10 years ago, as those are the last public records available. That was the year that the UK government decided to close its UFO desk at the Ministry of Defense. As officials said that in 50 years, no evidence of a potential threat has ever been found. <laughs> now, folks... Um, Again, look, I always, on the Paranormal Sun, I always do my best to present evidence and allow you to be the judge, okay? I want you to think for yourselves. I want you to form your own opinions. But the fact that any government in the world says that they've never found any evidence that there is a potential threat from UFOs is very patronizing and disingenuous. And I'm going to tell you why right now. Now, we pay billions and billions of dollars in taxes. And, you know, if you go all around the world, it will be into the trillions, I would say, to our governments each year. And one of the major reasons we pay into these uh, governments, our taxes, is to defend us, defend our airspace from anything hostile. So if there are things flying around in our airspace that not only can the military not explain, cannot intercept, and cannot um, communicate with, I'm sorry, but um, it's just ridiculous to say that there's no potential threat. Now, you can argue all day whether they've actually ever demonstrated any hostility. That's not the point. A potential threat is there's the potentiality that it could be a threat. 
And when you've got things flying around at thousands of miles an hour and that can it can turn, you know, 90 degree right angles with, you know, it, at the drop of a hat, I'm sorry, we can't keep up with that kind of technology. It's definitely has to be considered a potential threat. So I digress. And back to the story, it says, however, there have been some interesting sightings connected with the borough by incredible witness or by credible witnesses. In South Staffordshire, pilots flying from Halfpenny Green Airport, known as Bobbington Airport, reported seeing UFOs during a flight in February 2019. One pilot reported being hit by a laser moments before the encounter. In 1988, a prominent UFO sighting occurred over Cannock Chase in Staffordshire, which was investigated by the MOD. Multiple witnesses report seeing objects over the beauty spot. One described seeing two triangular-shaped objects making a faint sound and climbing vertically into the sky. Reports were made to the then Stafford MP Bill Cash, who now serves who now serves the Stone Parliamentary constituency on the border. The 2009 data shows 11 UFO sightings were made in Shropshire and three in Birmingham. The most prominent UFO sighting in Shropshire is known as the Cosford Incident, which occurred at RAF Cosford in 1993. Now, folks, I haven't heard of that story, so I'll have to add that to the ongoing list of investigations. A large triangular craft was seen by an MOD police patrol at the airbase. Nick Pope. Now, Nick Pope, for those of you who don't know who Nick Pope is, if you've ever watched a UFO program or heard a UFO, you know, uh, audio or a video on YouTube, generally, if you hear a British accent and it's got to do with UFOs, 90% of the time, it will be two people. It will either be Nick Redfern or it will be Nick Pope. Now, Nick Pope worked for the British MOD. He manned the UFO desk. He is the one who wears glasses and has kind of grayish curly hair. So Nick Pope is definitely qualified to talk on this because he manned the UFO desk for the British Ministry of Defense. Okay, so uh, basically... um, Nick Pope uh, said it was among the best cases in the MOD's archive, which consisted of 12,000 sightings. So again, a rather large number, very similar to the U.S. cases in Blue Book and some of the other investigations. He believes it could have been investigated in a secret study by the Pentagon in the U.S. With the U.K.'s UFO desk now closed, there is no official government department that investigates sightings. So folks, um, these often are reported to the police, who then have to investigate them. Um, you know, imagine being a police officer, you're worried about all the other things, and then you've also got to investigate UFO cases. But uh, nonetheless, look, as time goes on, and as I do more programs, I'll definitely be covering some of these cases from the UFO. So yeah, folks, there have been a plethora of very fascinating cases out of the UK, and I'll be covering some of these in the future, no doubt. You know, everything from the Rendlesham case, uh, Berwyn Mountain, the Solway for a Spaceman, the Top Cliff incident, the Mainbrace case, and then Winston Churchill. What did he know? What was he told? There's all kinds of different uh, facts out there on the Internet about what he knew, what he was told. Basically, what I've heard or what I can kind of paraphrase I, I remember is that he basically said to keep it quiet, keep a lid on it, or the British people would freak out. So yeah, look, it's, it's really fascinating. It's not just a U.S. thing, as I say. And uh, the more you look into it, the more really fascinating cases you uh, find out about. Now, you know, again, for for those of you who don't know, J. Allen Hynek is one of the 
real core pillar members of ufology, okay? And he's the one who developed Close Encounters, all right? So when you talk Close Encounters, most people have heard of the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I remember watching it as a kid. Absolutely freaked me out seeing the aliens. But anyway, you know, you've got... Uh, you know, you've got these different um, classifications for UFO sightings. So, you know, you've got uh, uh, lights in the sky, you've got people seeing discs, you've got things being picked up on radar. And then, you know, so first, close encounters of the first kind, that's visual sightings of an unidentified uh, flying object. Um, and it's less than 500 feet away or 150 meters away. And that show appreciable uh, angular extension and considerable detail. So in other words, these are UFOs that are quite visible to the naked eye, fairly close. You can see them. You can tell what, you know, kind of what they they consist of, the general shape of the object. Uh, close encounters are the second kind. That's a UFO effect in which a physical effect is alleged. So this can be things like uh, interference with vehicles. So in close encounters of the third kind, where you saw him try and start his truck and he couldn't get it started, uh, things like... Um, uh, people being paralyzed or heat or discomfort, uh, the ground being burnt, vegetation being destroyed, uh, impact from the UFO landing. And then the third kind um, is when people actually see, you know, purported aliens or occupants. Um, and then later on, people have added on a few other categories. But those are the three most classic ones, you know. So basically, close encounters of the third kind being when you see aliens. So basically, anything from three and above. Uh, you're dealing with people actually purporting to see aliens. So yeah, uh, with that, folks, now on to the main topic of tonight's program. Stories of lost and buried treasure abound in the West. In New Mexico alone, there are dozens of legends and stories dealing with gold and silver hidden away in the recesses of one mountain chain or another. Victorio Peak is located along an ancient trading trail between Santa Fe, New Mexico and Chihuahua, Mexico, that the Spanish coin Jornado de Muerto, the journey of death. The Apache inhabited the valley around Victorio Peak for centuries because there was a freshwater spring at the base of the peak, the only such spring within a 40-mile or 60-kilometer radius. This was one of Apache Chief Victorio's hideouts and was the site of a battle in 1880 between Victorio's warriors and the U.S. Army's 9th Cavalry, the famous Buffalo Soldiers. The Victorio Peak treasure story begins in November 1937. When Milton Doc Noss went hunting in the Hembrio Basin of the San Andreas Mountains. Doc Noss was born in Oklahoma and traveled all over the Southwest seeking excitement. In 1933, he married Ova Bay Beckworth, and the two settled down in Hot Springs, New Mexico, which later changed its name to Truth or Consequences. Now, as an aside, folks, as I say, we had family friends in Truth or Consequences, and the town actually changed its name to Truth or Consequences to be the setting of a game show in the 1950s. That's why it has such an odd name. It's, uh, it's one of those small out-of-the-way towns that decided uh, here's a chance for us to get some tourists and for us to get an ongoing game show uh, and be broadcast each, each, uh, each episode onto the airwaves and get people to know where we are. So in November of 1937, Doc... Babe and four others left on a deer hunt into the Embryo Basin, setting up camp on the desert floor at the base of Victorio Peak. The men headed into the wilderness, and while their wives stayed at camp, hunting by himself, 
Doc scouted the base of the mountain. When it began to rain, Doc sought shelter from a rocky overhang near the summit of the mountain. While waiting for the rain to subside, he noticed a stone that looked as if it had been worked in some fashion. Reaching down, he was unable to budge it, but after digging around the rock, he got his hands under it, lifting the rock. He found a hole that led straight down into the mountain. Peering into the darkness, Doc saw an old man-made shaft with a thick wooden pole attached on one side. Doc thought that he had discovered an old abandoned mine shaft. When the rain finally stopped, Doc returned to the camp. He told Babe of his discovery, and the two decided to keep the discovery between themselves and return to inspect the shaft at a later date. Within just a few days, Doc and Babe were back at the site with ropes and flashlights. Testing the old wooden pole attached to one side of the passage, Doc rejected the idea of using it and dropped into the shaft with a rope instead. While Babe looked on from above, Doc inched his way down the narrow passageway into the mountain nearly 60 feet. Near the bottom, he encountered a huge boulder hanging from the ceiling, almost blocking his way. When he finally reached the bottom, Doc stepped into a chamber the size of a small room. On the walls were drawings, some painted and others chiseled, that appeared to have been made by the Indians. At one end of the chamber, the shaft continued downward. Once again, Doc began to descend, this time about 125 feet, before the shaft was again leveling off into a large natural cavern. Several smaller rooms had been chiseled from the rock along the one wall. Stepping into an eerie darkness, Doc was alarmed when he saw a human skeleton kneeling and securely tied to a stake driven into the ground. The skeleton's hands were bound behind its back. Apparently, the person had been deliberately left there to die. Within moments, he found many more skeletons, most of them bound and secured to stakes like the first. Exploring further, he found yet even more skeletons stacked in a small enclosure much like a burial chamber. All told, he reportedly found 27 human skeletons in the caverns of the mountain. As Doc continued to explore the side caverns, he found a hoard of treasure including coins, jewels, saddles, and priceless artifacts, including a gold statue of the Virgin Mary. He also found some old letters and many Spanish items, such as swords, helmets, and armor. The most recent of the letters was dated from 1880. This treasure was only the beginning. In a deeper cavern, Doc found what he thought was a stack of worthless iron bars. He estimated there were thousands of these bars, each weighing over 40 pounds, stacked against a wall. He was barely able to lift one, much less think of carrying it back to the surface. Understandably, the value of this treasure has grown over the years, with inflation and the increased value of gold. Years ago, some estimated its value at $26 million dollars. Now it's been estimated as worth up to $30 billion. Doc filled his pockets with gold coins, grabbed a couple of jeweled swords, and laboriously returned to Babe, waiting anxiously at the surface. After telling her of what he had seen and showing her the loot, she insisted he go back into the mine for one of those iron bars. After much searching, he finally found a smaller iron bar that he could carry back through the narrow passageway. When he reached the surface, he told Babe, this is the last one of them babies I'm going to bring out. However, when Babe rolled the bar over, she noticed a yellow gleam where the gravel of the hillside had scratched off centuries of black grime. What looked to be a piece of iron was actually a solid gold bar. After the discovery of the treasure, Doc and Babe spent every free moment exploring the tunnels inside the mountain, living in a tent at the base of the peak. On each trip, Doc would retrieve two gold bars and as many artifacts as, as he could carry. 
At one time, he brought out a crown which contained 243 diamonds and one blood pigeon red ruby. Yet Doc trusted no one, not even Babe, disappearing into the desert, hiding pieces of the treasure in places that he never revealed. Among the artifacts, Doc is reported to have retrieved documents dated 1797, which he buried in the desert in a Wells Fargo chest along with various other treasures. Although the originals have never been recovered, a copy of one of the documents proved to be a translation from Pope Pius III, but Doc Noss cared little about the historical value of the treasures inside Victorio Peak, mostly ignoring the pouches, packs, and artifacts, while he concentrated on the gold coins and bars. However, Doc was unable to capitalize on the gold bars, as four years before his discovery, Congress had passed the Gold Act, which outlawed the private ownership of gold. Unable to sell the gold bars on the open market, Noss was stymied by continued, but continued to work steadily to remove the treasure. In the spring of 1938, Doc Noss and Babe went to Santa Fe to establish legal ownership of the find, filling a lease with the state of New Mexico for the entire section of land surrounding Victorio Peak. Subsequently, he also filed several mining claims on and around Victorio Peak, as well as a treasure trove claim. The legal ownership established, Noss began to openly work the claim, but he also became increasingly paranoid, hiding the gold bars all over the desert. In the fall of 1939, Doc wanted to enlarge the passageway into Victorio Peak so that the treasures could be more easily removed. Hiring a mining engineer by the name of S.E. Montgomery, the two went into the mountain to blast out the shaft. The engineer suggested eight sticks of dynamite, to which Doc heatedly disagreed, claiming the mountain was too unstable. However, the expert won the argument. The blast was a disaster, causing a cave-in, collapsing the fragile shafts, and effectively shutting Doc out of his own mine. Doc tried several times to regain entry into his mine, but the shaft was sealed with tons of debris. All attempts failed, leaving him an embittered and angry man, which caused problems in the marriage. Noss had a number of allies working at the peak. In 1941, a group of about 20 people who had furnished money and labor formed a company to raise money to straighten up and, and timber the shaft. During World War II, Doc Noss disappeared and divorced Ova while he was living in Arkansas. He came back in 1945, and the small group wanted to incorporate, but Noss refused. Two years later, he married Violet Lana Bowles, which would further complicate ownership of the treasure rights for years to come. Now, instead of having thousands of gold bars to draw from, Noss only had a few hundred that he had hidden in the desert. Becoming desperate for cash, Doc, along with a man named Joseph Andreg, transported gold bars, coins, jewelry, and other artifacts into Arizona, selling them on the black market. For nine years, Doc attempted illegally to sell his gold, but it was difficult finding buyers. In 1948, Doc met Charles Ryan a Texan involved in drilling operations and oil exploration in West Texas. Noss made an agreement with Ryan to exchange some of the gold bars for $25,000 to reopen the shaft. Meanwhile, Babe Noss had filed a counterclaim on the entire area. Denied entry by the courts until legalities could determine the legal owner of the mine, Doc feared Ryan would back out of the deal. Sensing a double cross by Ryan, Doc dug up the gold that he was to be used in the exchange and reburied it in a place where Ryan was unaware. The next day, March 5, 1949, Ryan arrived in the area, insisting that they discuss the problem of what happened to the gold. However, Noss demanded to see the money before revealing the new hiding place. 
Ryan hinted that if Noss did not reveal the whereabouts of the gold, Doc would not live to enjoy it. An intense argument ensued, and Noss headed towards his car. Ryan, fearing Doc was getting a gun, fired a warning shot in Doc's direction, demanding that Noss back away from the vehicle. Noss refused to obey, and Ryan fired again, hitting Noss in the head, killing him instantly. Just 12 years after discovering a treasure worth billions, Doc Noss died with just $2.16 in his pocket. Now, at the trial for murder, the following testimony came out during Charles Ryan's trial. It was held on May 25th and 26th in Las Cruces, New Mexico. The jury brought in a verdict of not guilty based on self-defense. According to Ryan, Noss supposedly talked, talked him into traveling with him to New Mexico to check on the mine. When they got to Victoria Peak, they found Ova controlling the site with a state permit which allowed her to prospect there. Noss allegedly told Ryan not to worry, and they filed claims on sites north of Victoria Peak, which contained some lead-bearing ore. According to court testimony, Ryan finally realized he was being duped by Noss into providing money for nothing. Ryan testified he stopped his, his lead mining operations on March 4th and 5th, 1949, and told Noss he was leaving New Mexico after he called the sheriff to come and arrest Doc for fraud. Noss struck Ryan and ran out of the Ryan house in Hatch and shouted he would kill them all. Ryan stepped out onto the porch and fired two shots from his own pistol. The second shot hit Noss in the head and killed him instantly. The jury brought in a verdict of not guilty based on self-defense. Ova supposedly claimed there was a conspiracy of silence, and Doc was killed over gold bars he didn't deliver. One source says Ryan later went to Ova and proposed a partnership in Victoria Peak. She refused. The press reports all say that Ryan killed Noss because he wouldn't turn over gold he promised to sell to Ryan. The trial testimony doesn't raise this issue. There could have been a cover-up, but it seems just as plausible that Ryan told the truth during the trial. There is probably a little bit of truth on both sides. After Doc's death, Ovanoss inherited the story of treasure at Victoria Peak and its inherent benefits and curses. She continued to work at the peak with the help of supporters and family members and to sell shares. As the years passed, Babe Noss held on to her claim at Victoria Peak, occasionally hiring men to help her clear the shaft. In 1952, she visited the Denver Mint and inquired if Milton Noss had made any deposits of gold at the Mint from November 1937 to March 1949. Mint record shows none was made. Interestingly, she wrote the Mint in 1939 asking officials what they should do if they found gold. She indicated they had an old map showing the location of gold bars and they were searching for them. She was told to notify the Mint immediately if they found anything. However, it was a slow process, and in 1955, the White Sands Missile Base unexpectedly expanded their operations to encompass the Amarillo Basin. Babe then began a regular correspondence with the military, requesting permission to work her claim. But she was always denied. From that moment onward, every attempt of Babe's to clear the rubble from the plug shaft met with a military escort out of the area. This was the beginning of long legal battles over the ownership of the claim. The military claim stemmed from a statement made by New Mexico officials of November 14, 1951, which withdrew prospecting, entry, location, and purchase under the mining laws, reserving the land for military use only. However, disputing the military claim, New Mexico officials stated that they leased only the surface of the land to the military. Further, they stated that underground wealth in whatever form it took belonged to the state or to any legal license holders. 
becoming even more complicated. A search of mining records failed to turn up any existing claims, including that of Doc Noss. Additionally, the actual land where Victoria Peak is located was not owned by the state of New Mexico, but rather by a man named Roy Henderson, who had leased it to the Army. The dispute was finally worked out when a federal court issued a compromise of sorts, which stated the Army would continue to use the surface of the land, but no one would be allowed on the property without the Army's consent. In effect, no one could mine the treasure, and that included the Army and Babe Noss. Interestingly enough, on January 5, 1953, Ova Noss assigned 4% of her Victoria Peak interest to J.L. Fowler of Enid, Oklahoma, who in turn sold parts to at least 10 persons in Oklahoma and Kansas. In February 1955, a Mrs. Miller of Caldwell, Texas, wrote to the Mint concerning the purchase of gold mining stock from Ova Noss. This is intriguing since public records showed Ova had no legal claims at the peak. There is some correspondence showing the Treasury Department was concerned about the possibility of fraud and an investigation was made. The next highlight in this story is the Phage episode. Leonard Fage was an Air Force captain assigned to Holloman Air Force Base in 1958. He later claimed in 1961 that he and three other men, Bear Clay, Prather, and Wessel, went hunting in the Embryo Basin in 1958 and stumbled upon a tunnel in Victoria Peak. Fage and Barclay claimed that they crawled through into a small room which contained a stack of 80 to 100 gold bars weighing between 40 to 80 pounds, or 20 to 40 kilos each. Barclay recently admitted in a press interview that they were hunting gold to begin with, not wildlife as he had claimed when, when questioned by the base commander. Neither man being familiar with laws governing the discovery of treasure on a military base, Fage went to the Judge Adv Advocate's office at Holloman Air Force Base to confer with Colonel Sigmund I. Gesowitz. Now there are two military commands involved, so that's White, White Sands and also Holloman Air Force Base. Barclay and Fage formed a, a corporation to protect what they had found, as well as making a formal application to enter White Sands for a search and retrieval of the gold. However, White Sands issued an edict expressly forbidding them in return to return to the base. In the summer of 1961, upon the advice of the director of the Mint, when the, deputy, when the Department of the Army received the letter from the Mint, officials asked for the White Sands Missile Range's commanding general's comments. The general said, my stand has been that I shall deny entry unless I obtain such permission. I desire this permission and would like these rumors laid to rest once and for all. On July 30, 1961, Schinkel received permission to allow the investigation. Major General John Schinkel allowed Captain Fage, Captain Ornby Swanner, Major Kelly, and Colonel Gorman to work the claim. On August 5th, Fage and his party returned to Victoria Peak, accompanied by the commander of the missile range, a secret service agent, and 14 military police. Try as he would, Captain Fage was unable to penetrate the opening he had used just three years earlier. General Schinkel finally had enough and ordered everyone out. Later, Fage would take a lie detector test, which would allow Fage back onto the missile range. So I'm assuming that that lie detector test would have passed. He would have, um, you know, he would have been asked, did you actually discover this gold? And he would have said yes, and he would have passed. This time, the military began a full-scale mining operation at the peak. Fueled by suspicions that the military was working her claim, Babe Noss hired four men to surreptitiously enter the range. Though caught trespassing and escorted from the area, 
the men reported that they had observed several men in army fatigues upon the peak. An affidavit dated October 28, 1961, was signed to this effect, also claiming to have seen military jeep and a weapons carrier on the mountain. Immediately reporting the activity to Babe Noss, Babe contacted Oscar Jordan with the New Mexico State Land Office, who in turn contacted the Judge Advocate's office at White Sands. Schinkel communicated with the Secretary of the Army and local officials that work was stopped and that the Fees Group had found nothing. The Secret Service already knew it since they had a man on site. The Noss lawyers pushed for access for Mrs. Noss. In December 1961, General Schinkel shut down the operation and excluded anyone from entering the base who was not directly engaged in missile research activities. After this, the Noss group continued to seek permission to enter. The range's position was that the group had no legal claim, therefore there was no reason to grant such an entry. In late 1962, the Gladys Mining Company and the New Mexico Museum approached the missile range, seeking permission to enter and dig at Victorio Peak. The state of New Mexico sponsored the request, and the Army recognized the state's interest in a possible historical find. Rumors flew during the dig, saying Harold Beckwith, son of Ovanos, was financing Gaddis. On June 20, 1963, a license was granted by the Army for a 30-day exploration. The Gaddis Mining Company, for three months beginning on June 20, 1963, began with simultaneous archaeological, seismic, and gravity surveys. According to Chester Johnson, a museum rep on site, nothing was found. He added that a D7 Caterpillar tractor was used to cut and build roads wherever they were needed, even on top of the peak. Most of the scars on the peak are a result of this activity, not any army work at the site. In addition to this work, the company drove their own tunnel 218 feet into the side of Victorio Peak in an attempt to gain access to the lower regions. This failed. The group used a variety of other techniques to search the area, however they failed to turn up anything. In the end, the company found nothing and reportedly spent $250,000. As, as part of this, White Sands filed a claim with the state for the reimbursement for support during the quest. The claim was for $7,640, and it was filed in October 1963, and finally paid in November 1964. In 1964 and 1965, the Museum of New Mexico and Gladys Mining were both back seeking permission to re-enter the range. In the same period, D. Richardson and R. Tyler visited the White Sands requesting permission to locate, quote, lost treasure, unquote. Also, Violet Yancey, Doc Noss's second wife, showed up asking to get onto the range. Violet popped up again in 1969, making headlines in Texas and New Mexico. She hired two Fort Worth lawyers and was trying to establish her right to the treasure. She indicated there were documentation showing Doc left her 76% of the treasure and over the other 24%. One person conspicuously missing from the recorded request during the 60s is Ova Noss. More than likely, though, she was operating through various backers at the time. A hot rumor during the Gaddis search was that Harold Beckwith, Ova's son, was financing the Gaddis operation. Reporters pressed the question at the time but could not confirm it. It may be that the family was operating through some other group. This brings us to the point where Victorio Peak gained national exposure through the Watergate hearings and the likes of Jack Anderson and F. Lee Bailey. In 1972, F. Lee Bailey became involved in the dispute, representing some 50 clients including Babe Noss, the Fage Group, Violet Noss, Yancey, Expeditions Unlimited, a Florida-based treasure hunting group, and many others. 
He reached a compromise. The military base allowed Expeditions Unlimited, representing all of the claimants, to excavate the peak in 1977. However, the Army placed a two-week time limit on the group, and they had hardly started before they were forced to leave, without finding anything. The Army then shut down all operations, stating that no additional searches would be allowed. On June 2, 1973, Jack Anderson reported in his syndicated column the story of noted attorney F. Lee Bailey's involvement with gold bars in New Mexico, and specifically White Sands Missile Range. According to Anderson, Bailey was authorized by a consortium to gain legal possession of the golden treasure at White Sands Missile Range. The group promised to pay taxes and then sell the rest of the gold at a profit to themselves. Bailey was supposedly skeptical at first, so he asked for proof. The group came up with a gold bar about four inches long and promised hundreds more to prove the claim. Bailey sent it to the Treasury Department and had it assayed. It proved to be 60% gold and 40% copper. Anderson's article quickly pointed out ancient gold ingots often were not pure and this percentage shouldn't be viewed as significant. A Bailey spokesman later stated the consortium knew the location of 292 gold bars, each weighing about 80 pounds. However, Treasury and Army expressed disinterest in Bailey's proposals. Bailey took his problems to U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell. Mitchell then repeated much of it at a lunch with H.R. Haldeman and John Dean. Finally, Dean, during his Senate Watergate investigation testimony, mentioned something about Bailey, gold bars in New Mexico, and making a deal for his client to avoid prosecution for holding gold. According to Bailey's people, after a storm of Watergate headlines linking treasure to the investigation, Bailey's people said there were actually two groups of people. One was a small group that had stumbled onto the gold, and the other was a group of businessmen supporting them. Bailey never would reveal who his clients were, but it later came out one was a Fred Drolt, wanted by authorities on an arms smuggling charge. Bailey later was quoted as saying that, Given a helicopter and access to White Sands, he could have gold bars in 30 minutes. At this point, things really started to get interesting. In late 1973, several people stole into the Embryo Basin and set off a dynamite charge in, the side of, in, the, in a side canyon east of Victorio Peak. They supposedly blasted the Indian pictographs off a rock wall. Some people claimed if you knew how to read the drawings, they would lead you to the treasure. After the trespass, security was beefed up and a house trailer was put in at HEL site just west of Victorio Peak. It was, it was to house rangefinders and military police. In July 1974, the, the range announced it was making more improvements to the site with the addition of a helicopter pad, a 30-foot antenna, and portable generators. The additional work was done in anticipation of approval for another gold search. In 1979, Babe died without ever finding the treasure. However, Terry Delonis, her grandson, continued the family tradition and formed the Ovanos Family Partnership. By this time, Babe's story had spread across the nation, profiled in several magazines and newspapers. Hearing about the story, a man by the name of Captain Swanner, who was stationed at White Sands Missile Base in the early 1960s, came forward. Speaking to a Noss family member, he stated that he had been the chief of security in 1961 and was sent to inspect the report made by Airman Burlett and Captain Fage. After determining the accuracy of the two men's reports, the entire area was placed off-limits until an official investigation could be conducted. Reportedly, the military was able to penetrate one of the caves and inventory the contents. The gold was supposedly removed from the cave and sent to Fort Knox. Though the military confirmed that Swanner had served at White Sands during the time, they claimed there were no documents to support an investigation into the mine 
nor the removal of the gold bars. At this point, Victorio Peak was in the news all the time. There was lots of maneuvering by various groups trying to gain entrance. The Bailey Group signed a deal with the state. New Mexico would get 25% to allow them first crack at the peak. The Army didn't buy it, and New Mexico battled the Army in the press for quite a while. As the story spread, the missile range started receiving letters from people all over the world asking for information or permission to explore. Perfect strangers came forward to offer their ESP capabilities, their divining rods, their great-grandfather's knowledge, and their old maps. Some supposedly legitimate claimants emerged from this. In August 1973, White Sands received a letter from a lawyer named W. Doyle Elliott. It turns out he was retained by Roscoe Parr to get himself a piece of the action. Elliott stated in his letter that Parr, quote, alone possesses all of the necessary information and instructions from Dr. Noss to settle the issue, unquote. The letter goes on to say Noss had an insight he might die before gaining access into the peak again and gave Parr all of the necessary instructions to access the gold. Also, he supposedly told Parr how to divide the treasure and generously offered Parr the balance after it was divided. Elliot solemnly pointed out Parr, accepted and agreed to fulfill the requirements made of him by Dr. Noss. None of this was apparent in writing. By the end of 1974, you needed a program to keep all of these, these different claimants straight. Someone reported Fage had gone into partnership with Violet Noss Yancey. There also was the mysterious Bailey Group, Ova Noss, Parr, the Shriver Group, the Gold Finder Group, and Expeditions Unlimited headed by Norm Scott. Ovenos took the bull by the horns and sued the Army for $1 billion. The case was dismissed. The Army was reluctant to deal with any one group for fear of showing favoritism. A number of solutions were proposed which included a lottery drawing to determine order of entry and a free-for-all gold rush which probably would have ended in a bloodbath. None of these approaches was acceptable. Then Scott was able to organize the various claimants and he proposed Expeditions Unlimited represent the various groups and deal with exploring their claims. The Army accepted this search, and it was set for mid-1976. This was postponed twice, and finally Operation Goldfinder got underway in March 1977. Before it even started, the range had to battle the rumors. Just, before, just a few days before the start, word got around that the search was open to the public. Public affairs from the missile base scrambled to get the word out that this was only authorized searchers, and the press would not be allowed in. A press conference was held on 18th March, and the actual search began the next day. Each day, press and searchers were registered at the peak and searched. At one point, there was a report one of the claimant groups was going to try to salt the mine. So for those of you who don't know what salting the mine is, it's to put gold there uh, so that they could then claim that they'd discovered gold. They were asked to leave by Scott. The searchers went site to site seeking the elusive gold bars. Eventually, an extension was granted to run the operation until April 1st. To say there was some press interest in the event would be an understatement. The New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, London Daily Mail, Newsweek, Time Magazine, Rolling Stone, and the National Enquirer were all there along with the local and regional print media. Of course, the television and radio stations showed up in force too. Probably the most notable, or at least most famous reporter attending was Dan Rather, who was then with 60 Minutes. He attracted almost as much attention as the peak itself. In the end, most of the claimants had their time on Victoria Peak and failed to turn up any gold bars or anything of value. Immediately following the 1977 search, there was a flurry of requests to re-enter the range, but the Department of Army emphatically stated that 
no exploration for lost treasure on White Sands Missile Range will be permitted for the foreseeable future. Now, I've dug up some really interesting seismic data on what some of these expeditions found about Victorio Peak. So I'm just going to read a bit of that. So it says, an extensive seismic experiment at Victorio Peak was indicated the presence of at least one large cavern under the mountain. The alleged cavern produces over an 80% reduction in amplitude of the direct arrival over a range of hydrophones spanning approximately 100 feet or 30 meters, indicating that the anomaly may be associated with the large caverns containing the Victorio Peak treasure described by Doc Noss and his colleagues. Now that's quite interesting, folks, because, uh, you know, if that's true, basically there is something under this peak. Now, there was also a backers tape that was circulating. So this is um, them trying to get investors and kind of a word to investors. And it says that after hundreds of readings from different angles, there has definitely, there's a definitive picture of the room, and it turns out to be 200 feet below the old Gaddis Tunnel, which was completed in 1963. This makes sense because the family has always claimed that Doc went down, by his own estimate, 300 to 400 feet into the peak. The Gaddis Tunnel is 200 feet below the chimney opening on the top of the peak. He goes on to assure backers that most of the gold is still there by saying, quote, If any artifacts or gold have been removed in recent years, they are probably secondary deposits and I would suspect not the main deposit, unquote. Not only is this good news for hopeful backers, it seems to say that the army really didn't steal the, soul, the gold as unsolved mysteries and others have accused. He goes on to say that Doc Noss reported seeing more than 16,000 bars of gold in the cavern. This is a total gross weight of 640,000 pounds, working out at 40 pounds per bar, which turns out to be 384,000 pounds of gold if each bar is only 60% gold. He then multiplies that amount by $350 per ounce and gets a value of $2,150,000,000. That's right, more than $2 billion. Now, again, this was in the 70s. Now, I ran those same calculations uh, off of $1,700 U.S. an ounce, and I get $10.5 Now, if those bars were 80 pounds instead of 40 pounds, then you'd be more looking in that range of $20 billion plus. One of the people accompanying Ovanos in 1979 was Terry Delanus, her grandson. Delanus is the head of the family partnership and has been leading the effort to gain entry into Victorio Peak. In early 1989, the partnership approached the Department of Army, seeking permission to talk to White Sands about possible entry into Victorio Peak. Talking on much of the effort has been Norman Scott's Expeditions Unlimited out of Florida. Scott has been in the treasure hunting business for years and organized this hunt which took place at Victorio Peak in 77, and a special act of Congress passed in 1989. The Hembrio Basin was unlocked for Terry Delanus and the Noss heirs. However, nothing has been found. Now, as far as I know, folks, uh, up until now, there's been nothing, nothing new found, or if it has been, it hasn't been released to the public. Now, that gives you a background of kind of the treasure search and all of the people involved, some of the controversy, and, and it is very exhaustive. Now we're going to get into the juicy part, which is, if the treasure is there, what are some of the possibilities? So when Doc's story eventually hit the headlines, scholars began speculating on how the enormous treasure could have come to be stashed inside of Victorio Peak. Some believe that Doc Noss found the Casa del Cuevo de Oro, 
Spanish for the House of the Golden Cave. Others believe that Nos found the treasure of, of Don Juan de Onate, who in 1598 founded New Mexico as a Spanish colony, seeking out the seven cities of gold. Onate was said to have been a cruel man, brutally subjugating the Indians to do his bidding by beating and torturing them. Reportedly, he amassed a treasure of gold, silver, and jewels before being ordered back to Mexico City in 1607. Now, the most written about and talked about source has to be the legendary Padre La Rue mine. This legend is usually associated with the Oregon Mountains, but Victorio Peak is only 40 miles north of them. So, this is the story of Felipe La Rue. During the latter part of the 18th century, so later, later part of the 1700s, Felipe Larue, the son of a wealthy French nobleman, joined a Franciscan monastery in his native country. His reasons for doing so have long been debated, but most agree that Larue took the vows of poverty and chose to lead a life of self-denial as a result of his penchant for defiance against established authority. To him, becoming a monk was a form of rebellion against his family's status and wealth. Even as a monk, Larue constantly challenged church authority and often found himself in trouble with officials. As a result, LaRue's assignments were considered less than desirable. As new missions opened up in Spanish territories, church prelates believed it would do the young and fiery LaRue some good to serve his faith in harsh and primitive conditions. As a result, he was eventually assigned to a Mexico City monastery and given menial duties in the fields. LaRue was not in Mexico long before he returned to his old ways and once again began challenging church policies. In response, church officials had him whipped, confined, and sentenced to hard labor. The more he was punished, however, the more LaRue resisted church rules. One day, a soldier who had been serving in New Mexico arrived at the mission following a long journey. The soldier had fallen ill during the last days of his travels, and it fell upon Padre LaRue to nurse him back to health. As the soldier's condition worsened, he confided in LaRue that he had found a substantial vein of gold in the north. He told LaRue that he planned to raise money in Mexico City to finance a mining operation, but feared he would die before he did so. LaRue listened carefully to the soldier's deathbed descriptions and directions. When the soldier died, LaRue continued to think about the possibilities of traveling to the north and finding the gold. Following two years of continuous conflict with his superiors, LaRue convinced a number of other monks as well as two dozen Indian converts to flee with him far to the north, where he intended to establish a colony and mine the gold he believed he could, be, he could find. There he promised the members could live and worship as they wished, without the constant strict interference of the church. Late one night, LaRue and his companions stole several mules and a quantity of supplies and fled from the monastery. The party traveled northward towards a land of which they had only scant knowledge. This did not deter them. All they cared about was that it exceeded the long reach of the church. Weeks later, the weary party finally reached El Paso del Norte on the Rio Grande. Here they replenished their supplies and sought information about the lands to the north before continuing. Several more days of travel brought them to Hembrillo Springs in the wide basin adjacent to the western slope of the San Andreas Mountains. So this is where you need to listen, folks, because this is where Victorio Peak is. Here LaRue found an abundance of water and game. They were also delighted to realize the location was sufficiently isolated from main roads and hopefully outside of intrusion. Within hours of arriving in the basin, LaRue ordered his tired band of travelers to begin construction of a church and dwellings. As some of the men engaged in hauling stones and mixing mortar, others planted corn and beans and dug primitive aqueducts to transport the spring water to the new gardens and a hastily built cistern. 
As the settlement progressed, one of LaRue's followers discovered a thick outcrop of gold in nearby Victorio Peak while hunting for game. LaRue was excited about the find and regarded it as a positive sign from the heavens. With the gold, he considered they would now be able to fashion crucifixes and chalices for use in their worship services. LaRue immediately assigned two monks to dig the gold, but as it became apparent that the ore was very rich and plentiful, two dozen men were soon put to the task of excavating and smelting. Gold bars began to accumulate, and before long, hundreds of them were stacked along the walls of the mine shaft and in a large underground chamber found inside the mountain. Now, three years later, after LaRue had fled the monastery, word of the colony and the gold mining activity somehow got back to Mexico City. Intrigued by tales of the rich gold deposit, church officials sent out a force of soldiers to capture LaRue and return him to Mexico City, where he would be brought before his superiors and punished. A cadre of monks accompanied the soldiers. Their assignment was to re remain at Hambrio Basin with the Indians and oversee the ongoing mining operations and ensure that the gold ingots were shipped back to the monastery on a regular basis. Learning of the expedition's approach, LaRue ordered the entrance to the mine closed and concealed and instructed his faithful followers to keep the location secret from the intruders. When the contention of soldiers and monks arrived at the settlement, LaRue was taken prisoner and interrogated about the gold. When he refused to speak, he was stripped naked, tied to a post, and whipped until torn flesh hung from his bloodied back. Despite the severe punishment, LaRue remained silent. Eventually, he lost consciousness from the brutal whippings and died the following day. Several of his companions were also tortured and killed, but no one revealed the location of the rich gold mine. Finally, the discouraged soldiers changed, chained the survivors together and began the long trek back to Mexico City, forever abandoning the little colony at Hembrio Basin. So as you can see, folks, if this story is true, it would explain why not only did Doc Noss find all of these gold bars, but he found them hidden in the peak. Many people will have you believe that Noss found the original mine, while others would say it's just the secret hiding place. Ova did produce a photograph of some gold bars which Doc brought up, and one is clearly stamped with the name LaRue. Could Victorio be the site of the original mine, or the hiding place with the mine located somewhere nearby? Another story deals with the Emperor Maximilian of Mexico. According to this story, he was, fleeing, he was trying to flee Mexico with all of his riches. The mules made it to... Uh, made it... And the stash was hidden with the porters be, being left to die in the cave. Unfortunately for Maximilian, he didn't make it out of Mexico. Legend says he sent a palace full of valuables to the U.S. to be hidden. Maximilian was assassinated in 1867. A third story was that the German government sending a shipment of gold over to Pancho Villa and the gold being waylaid in New Mexico. The gold was supposed to be used by Villa to pay for his attacks against the U.S. and draw the U.S. into a war with Mexico so Americans would not go to Europe and fight in World War I. A fourth explanation for the gold in Victorio Peak is the one about it being a repository for Apache raiders. Chief Victorio. This would explain why the Wells Fargo chests found there, uh, were found there by Doc Noss. The Indians of the area had been fighting an ongoing 300-year battle, first with the Spanish, later with the Mexican, and lastly with U.S. government troops, as well as settlers, prospectors, and explorers to protect their land. Now, Chief Victorio used the entire Embryo Basin as his stronghold. He refused to live on the San Carlos Reservation in Arizona, where the government wanted to banish him. A treaty was reached between the tribe and the federal government in Washington that the Indians could stay upon the land in New Mexico. 
However, with the discovery of gold, the treaty was broken in 1878, and Victoria went on the warpath. Victorio knew how much the white man valued gold, and having little use for it himself, he amassed huge amounts of treasure by attacking the white settlers. His warriors raided southern New Mexico and Texas in an all-out war against the U.S. Army and the Texas Rangers. They attacked wagon trains, settlements, mail coaches, and churches. He took anything from them that they valued. He was also known to take prisoners back to the basin where he subjugated them to elaborate torture tests before killing them. This could possibly explain the skeletons in the cavern. It would also explain the presence of the Wells Fargo bags, pack saddles, letters, and other artifacts dating to Victoria's time. Later, some researchers would conclude that the shaft was the very same one as the Lost Padre Mine used by Padre LaRue in the late 1700s, then later used again by Chief Victorio to store his stolen goods. This theory explains the thousands of gold bars, the antiques, and artifacts dating back more than 100 years. Now, folks, uh, like any good treasure story here, not everyone believes that the treasure exists or that it's still there. So I'm just going to co quickly cover over a few of the points uh, that people have identified when they claim that this story is a hoax or a scam. So first off, a little bit of a background about Doc Noss that some people may not know. So his nickname was Doc, and it was because he passed himself off as a doctor. But he was not a doctor, and he was reportedly arrested in Texas for practicing medicine without a license. Now, he would often treat people in uh, the town of Truth or Consequences uh, for foot, foot problems and different issues, but he actually wasn't a doctor, as I say. There's also rumors that he had an extensive criminal background, but again, those are, those are just rumors. Doc Noss never let Ova or anyone else into the cavern. Another interesting fact is that um, in 1939, a large gold brick was submitted to the U.S. Treasury for assay by Charles, Charles Usher of Santa Monica, California. He supposedly paid $200 for the brick, which he obtained from a man named Grogan. The assay revealed the bar contained 97 cents of gold. In an investigation conducted by the Secret Service, Grogan revealed he obtained the gold brick from Doc Noss in New Mexico. Many people don't realize there was a, a goat ranch right at the foot of Victorio Peak. The Henderson family lived there, and before that, it was grazed periodically by the Gilmore family. So again, that's as discussed earlier, that that's who the missile base actually leased the land from, was from the Henderson family. Now, in fact, in 1973, Mark Gilmore said he took Doc Noss to Embryo Basin in 1936 to show him a cave at the request of Noss. So that's a year before Doc Noss supposedly found this treasure. Government documents from approximately 1961 state that the Secret Service had indicated earlier that there might be a cache of non-gold bars on the site, which they said may have been placed there by Doc Noss to further his bunko game. So in other words, you know, he was hiding out these fake bars and selling them to investors. Bailey never would, so this is F. Lee Bailey, he never would reveal who his clients were, but it later came out one was Fred Drolt, wanted by authorities on arms smuggling. So I mentioned this earlier, but again, it just, this casts some aspersions on some of these people who made the claims. Now, in one of the articles I read, okay, so the reason why some of these comments have got kind of a from the military standpoint, is one of the stories I read was quite well documented, and it was from someone who worked at the White Sands uh, Missile Range, and it looked like an official kind of like blog from the military, and this was written in the 90s. 
Well, he said that there was an old there was an old timer from El Paso, Texas, who used to call um, who used to call him periodically to talk about Victoria Peak. Now he claimed that he knew Doc Noss and that Doc Noss used to buy copper bars and Oro Grande and have them electroplated with gold in El Paso. When asked why he didn't tell his story to the press, the old timer said he didn't think they would care because it would spoil the story. Another old timer who ranched near Victoria Peak claimed that Noss used to salt the sand at the springs around the base of the peak. When prospective investors showed up, Doc would be out panning flakes of gold out of the sand at the spring and showing them how much money was there. The fact that Captain Swanner's name is on the walls of one of the fissures in Victoria Peak is not the big deal that Unsolved Mysteries made it out to be on, on a Sunday night episode. According to Don Swan of Las Cruces, who was stationed at the White Sands Missile Ra- Range in 1956, soldiers were always spending weekends and free time in places like Victoria Peak. He says he put his name in one of the peak's tunnels, as did the soldiers with him. It is sometimes called Soldier's Hole. The U.S. Army claims activity during the phage episode was not the work of the Army as an organization, but rather allowed a claimant to do work at the site. The Army does not admit that they conducted any kind of official or unofficial search at the peak for its own benefit. The bar given to F. Lee Bailey was obviously not one of the alleged 80-pounders. An 80-pound bar with the stated proportion of gold and copper would be about 12 inches long, 5 inches wide, and 3 inches thick. Interestingly, modern 14-karat gold jewelry is 58% gold and 42% of other metals such as copper. In 1974, the same bar was examined by Los Alamos, which came to the same conclusion. The press dutifully reported experts saying that the bar was basically the same as jeweler's gold. Hmm, maybe some old rings melted down. Now, there's a a, uh, series of books that's been written called The Gold House Story. Now, I haven't read them, but um, they run uh, over a thousand pages in total. And apparently this tells this entire story uh, from the discovery to all of the middle years um, uh, and, you know, what Doc Noss found, all in great detail. Now, I haven't read these, as I say. Um, I might try and track them down at some point. Look, folks, um, what are we left with here, and, you know, what is there to discern? Well, potentially, we have a multi-billion dollar treasure that was stolen by the U.S. military or the U.S. government. There are other rumors floating around on the Internet that LBJ and Nixon... Um, found out about this treasure, and then had it secreted away. There have been stories floating around for a long time that there's actually no gold in Fort Knox. Well, let's say for argument's sake that some of that gold in Fort Knox was missing, and you know they used this gold to top up their reserves, because I don't remember the exact year, but I do know that in the 70s, Um, I believe it was Barry Goldwater and some other senators insisted on going into Fort Knox and actually seeing the gold for themselves. They were only shown one vault, or I think it was two vaults, out of the several that are in Fort Knox, and there was gold there. But again, what, what if it was this gold from Victoria Peak that was secreted away there? Whatever you believe here, folks, and and whatever it is, whether it's a hoax or a scam or whether it's the truth, whether it was gold from, uh, you know, missionary miners or it was gold hidden out from conquistadors or later you know look it's a really fascinating story and it's one of the greatest lost treasure stories of all time and i really do hope that uh, you know in my lifetime I, I get to find out what happened um 
as always, I'm not really going to give you my thoughts on it. Uh, you know, you can kind of read be between the lines and and um, and see what my thoughts are. But at the end of the day, look, this is a really fascinating case, and this is not the only one. There are many others all over the world. Now, as for the next episode, look, this has been a very exhaustive episode. Usually for a program, I might have three to four pages of kind of loose notes, but I had over 10 pages of notes for this. So um, the program's taken a bit longer than I thought. I also had some issues with audio, and I had to re-record the entire episode. So um, uh, the next episode will most likely be uh, about some type of uh, UFO topic, um, for those of you who are in the know and have been following along, you'll kind of see one UFO topic, one something else back to UFOs, simply because there's so many UFO cases out there that I would like to cover over and that there are so many UFO cases that people are really interested in. So aside from that, folks, as I say, as always, if you've got any feedback, if you want to know more, if there's something further you'd like me to investigate about this case or just something in general you want to know about, um, by all means, get a hold of me at the paranormal sun at gmail.com. Aside from that, folks, I hope you have a great week until I talk to you again. And to leave you, as always, with the quote from Art Bell, which is, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. <laughs>